Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast. Proud to be rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey, as a jurisdiction, is proud to have made a strategic and a strong strategic commitment, I should say, to sustainable finance. We're proud to be members of the United Nations Sustainable uh, Finance Centres for Sustainability Network. Our regulators are members of the Network for Greening the Financial System. And as part of our commitment to international engagement and policy discussion, we host this podcast series where we speak to and learn from some of the leading figures in the field globally. Hello, my name is Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive here at Guernsey Finance, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector, and I lead our industry steering uh, group, Guernsey Green Finance. And today I'm delighted to be speaking to Adam Black, Head of ESG and Sustainability at Collar Capital. Hello, Adam. Hello, Andy. Pleasure to be here and thank you for asking me. No, an absolute pleasure to have you, Adam. I mean, it's uh, it seems like a lifetime ago now uh, where we were uh, both spoke at uh, that Northern Trust uh, client webinar. But it's, I think it might have only been a few, a couple of years back. But so much has happened in that time. It does feel like uh, we've compressed uh, like an, an, an age in, in a couple of years. Um, so really proud to have you on, on the podcast. Really looking forward to having a conversation with you today. So to kick off then, you know, I always like to give a bit of an underarm delivery for my uh, for my guests. And uh, our first starter for 10, as it were, maybe just a nice little underarm. Could you tell us a little bit about the investment philosophies and the approach to ESG and impact investing that you guys at Collar Capital have? Yeah, sure. We're a mainstream private equity secondaries investor. We take positions in the funds of underlying general partners, GPs typically mainstream buyout funds. We are not an impact fund or some form of ESG fund. We are a mature and seasoned platform and we're responsible investors. We view ESG, environmental, social and governance, as an umbrella term for a collection of investment risk factors, many of which have been around for a long time, pollution, safety, slavery, fraud, and some of course are more recent like personal data governance and cyber risk. We believe that proper risk management, and to be clear, we view risk and opportunity as two sides of the same coin, that you cannot manage risk properly without considering opportunity controls. We believe that proper risk management, a full and proper evaluation of investment risk must include the ESG component. And reflecting on my experience from time in industry and from more operationally focused roles prior to joining Collar, My belief is that ESG can add real value to an investment when it's managed properly. In my experience, the best run companies do not display evidence of systemic governance failures, sustain high employee churn levels or high accident rates, and do not consistently pollute communities. And drawing upon the 2000 plus studies that show a positive link between ESG and financial performance, perhaps most recently summed up by a study by NUI, NYU Stern, it's our belief that ESG can lead to better risk-adjusted returns. And so for an investor like us, while we do not manage the assets, we can exert influence over the underlying general partners that do. We can form a view on the relative risk a portfolio might have, complete our due diligence, and comment formally at our investment committee. And where we can, we can engage underlying managers post-investment 
And you guys have been, um, you know, quite at the forefront of this space and presumably have been you know, regularly involved with active discussions uh, with the managers of your portfolio or the, the portfolios that you're investing in, into. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the returns to that portfolio, you say that, you know, these ESGs, it's a, it's a mindset, it's a process, it's a philosophy, and it's, it's a philosophy for good, quite frankly, because you're, you're doing better uh, by the world by it. But you're also saying that you're managing to address uh, and get better returns in that. How has that conversation gone? Um, over the years in terms of you know this this notion that actually by doing this going down this route there is a you know, for one for better term, like a sustainability alpha in that you know in terms of that risk return question you mentioned NYU Stern but um, in terms of the portfolios how how do you see that um, that conversation continuing? Yeah, I think you know it's not so much about the term ESG investing. I think because sometimes that conjures up an image of an investor who will only invest in certain businesses, solutions-focused companies, or certain types of infrastructure. The conversation I prefer to have really is to, and to get people to think of it in terms of simply investing. And you know, I hope that we reach a point where consideration of ESG is simply part of the day-to-day for any investor, but whatever your mandate as investors, the companies or the projects you invest in have to make a return on that investment. And make no mistake, ESG will not mean sacrificing returns. In my opinion, and from what I have seen, ESG only sacrifices returns when it is not managed or when it's not managed well. And I think a growing number of firms get that um, and are increasingly focusing their efforts on ESG in the investment process. I'd also add that the timeframes for tackling ESG risk and opportunity are becoming increasingly compressed. So what might have been viewed as too challenging to tackle during the the typical five to seven year average hold period for a typical PE fund is now much more of a a requirement to exit. And I'm thinking of, for example, climate risk and the response to it for a fund or a portfolio company. That's uh, that's an interesting point in terms of the climate risk, and you know, that one I think is for me quite a t- uh, quite a tangible discussion. Um, you know, I think uh, you know I understand what the you know, the climate change risk and how to conceptualise that, and obviously you've got you know, COP twenty six this year uh, and various other different regulations in place you know, coming in. In that specific you know that that e part of the esg agenda which is for me personally that's where i'm most comfortable with when you discuss it with your clients what what do you think they're the most comfortable with you know presently what are responses do you get into that global agenda when you say it's solutions-based investing you know it's more of a process what's um with everything that's going on presently um how how is that how is that happening um yeah in that respect yeah, I think um, conversations with both investors and managers are increasingly mature, considered and engaged. Uh, you mentioned regulation, of which there's a growing amount. Um, and of course, COP26, which it, which will be critical from a climate financing perspective. But there's also growing top-down pressure from investors and there's bottom-up scrutiny from the general public and consumers. Uh, my take after having spent over 12 years within private equity, um, is that there's there's been a change of tone. 
Uh, I was on the receiving end of some pretty fierce skepticism back in 2008, but I don't experience that anymore. Um, what skepticism there is, it's more like pragmatism. It's more asking how, how can we make this regulation work in our context, for example, or asking for thoughts on the implementation of ESG for certain fund types or on the issues certain companies might face in their supply chain and so on. So it's becoming more a much more sophisticated conversation and people seem to have much more of a can-do attitude. Um, they recognize the importance, the growing importance of these issues and want to make it work for them, um, which for us as investors in those underlying general partners is, is, is something we, we make a lot of and encourage and seek to influence as far as we possibly can. So you, you mentioned um, you know, the general partners there and, and the, the sort of the change that had happened since 2000. And you also mentioned regulation. Um, just the other week, obviously, the EU's FSFDR came into the force. Like it's only come into force. There's a, there's a long way to go before there's any reporting. I have seen an awful lot of noise around, around that. Personally, for me, it's always been the case of, you know, there's the rhetoric out there uh, about where the, the whole agenda has gotten to. And there's the reality of, you know, in practice where we are uh, presently. And uh, you, may, you may remind me of uh, the fact that you're on the, uh, with the conversation with Jen Choi Vilpa. And I had this conversation with her similarly, that there's the mismatch between what I call the two hours rhetoric reality. In terms of your secondary investor, you must be probably as cognizant of this issue more than most about the underlying data issues and what you can draw out. Where are we in terms of the ability to report and disclose, both in terms of, you know, for practical benefit, but also for regulatory benefit too? And, and is there a, a distinction between the two? I think you mentioned the SFDR, so, and it's been a week um, since that's been in. So let's let's wait and see where, where it goes. But I think many will... In respect to the SFDR, many will be watching to see how the market responds, uh, as well as wait for further clarity from the Commission and others on, it, on implementation and guidance. From what I know of private equity, um, and I guess to my earlier point, um, I know they thought very carefully about compliance with the SFDR and other regulations and other expectations, um, and they will think very carefully about how to implement it properly and how to get the data. Um, to your point about data, it's a fact that data does not often exist. That's just a fact. Um, but then that's, that's where this regulation and others will help over time because it's going gonna, it's gonna to force um, people to ask those questions about the data and hopefully for more data be to become more readily available. I think for us, in my role, you know, the, pri the private finance space is always going to be has has is faced this this legacy issue around you know it hasn't historically been required to, to report and disclose much information. Um, I've seen that change over the last several years through pressure arising from um, various stakeholders. But you know when we evaluate investment opportunities, we have to go to certain databases and service providers that can tell us about the assets we're interested in. It's all well and good drawing upon proxy data from um, listed equivalents, perhaps. But at the end of the day, what we really want to know about are the, are the entities we're actually going to be gaining an exposure to. So any database that can tell us anything about the ESG reputation or performance of a business 
of a general partner or even the underlying assets, that's going to be incredibly helpful to us and is something we, we draw on. And then it's having that direct face-to-face or rather now sort of a virtual conversation with a general partner or even the underlying assets about what ESG data exists. Equally, though, it's a conversation we have with other um, partners that we work with, notably CDP, the former Carbon Disclosure Project, and making introductions for partners such as the CDP to, to colleagues within private equity so we can hopefully foster a dialogue that encourages more disclosure of ESG data from, from private companies. Um, so it's, it's a reality that there is not the consistency or, or, or depth and breadth of data out there within the private space, but it's improving. And I think SFDR and other regulations arising in the long term can only be a good, uh, good thing in terms of you know, getting, getting the information out there that investors like ourselves need to view to make more informed investment decisions. You mentioned about two or three things there. I'm going to list them. I'm going to come back to you you on them. PE being the last one, we mentioned it a couple, or you've mentioned it a couple of times already. Um, And also the the standards and the SFDR. But one thing that just struck me there when you were speaking was you were talking about getting the information, the conversation from the GPs and the conversation with the underlying, you know, managers or management of the companies, as it were. Which do you think... In terms of disclosure and standards, it's almost like maybe it's a chicken and egg type situation. Which of those two uh, entities do you see most important in making forward momentum? Is it at the GP level or is it underlying? You know, which do you see as being the greater, having the greater influence for, for change? I think it depends on your mandate as, as an investor. I mean, in prior roles, it would for me, it was very much at the asset level, straight from the horse's mouth. Um, talking to peers that were in operational roles to really understand um, the nuances about ESG within the operations or supply chain of the company. In my current role, I mean, the the focus of our ESG program is very much at the level of the underlying general partner. So it's understanding their worldview from an ESG perspective, how they think about ESG factors, how ESGs considered in the investment decision-making and management process, and then looking for evidence of implementation, looking for good case studies, sensible conversations about thematic issues that are of import to a, to a particular investment or just more broadly from, the, from a portfolio perspective. I think when you think about disclosure and standards, there's no doubt some consolidation would be welcome. But I think as with any standard, simply saying that you meet it does not, in my, in my experience, automatically entitle you to some form of ESG passport. And there are many examples of businesses that have adhered to a standard or been certified to a standard but had ESG failures. So having a standard provides some comfort, but it would not, for instance, prevent us from asking our questions. It's not a free pass, and that would be potentially dangerous. So I would welcome consolidation around standards, but I think what will happen is there will be a few standards to select from. And we'll we'll see what happens in that space. But there does, from a private equity perspective, seem to be some some consistency around use of things like um, the TCFD framework, Task Force for um, Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, Um, obviously PRI as a framework for reporting, Um, but also equally when you think about materiality of ESG and what the issues are that matter, um, the SASB guidelines are 
are often widely, you know, you see those white, fairly widely adopted by, by private equity managers as well. And that be the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. For the, the That's standards. right. That's right. <laughs> it's an alphabet soup in this space, isn't it? It is an alphabet soup, which is yeah, which is a problem sometimes. And again, it might be, it might, I suppose, it might be. I don't want to sort of dwell too much on this, but I was coming to this point. You made the UN, uh, the UN point, uh, and the PRI. In fact, the UN. Uh, I still remember the LPRI publishing the uh, ESG principles for private equity yeah, or a few years back now, um, and climate change was a was a voluntary was a voluntary pillar it wasn't a, you know it wasn't a core pillar so i think things have moved on you mentioned the ccfd transport and climate related financial disclosures as we both know you know measurement and metrics being you know the two clear pillar i think in the the e-space it's it's pretty pretty clear in terms of that um you know black and white in terms of, of standards there but do you felt do you sense um maybe that anything particular you, you know i i've we're aware of locally we have obviously on the island quite a lot of specialist providers um being you know being in this space sensing that the WEF standards the, the world economic forum that was put together by the big four um sort of getting a bit of momentum behind it is that something that's useful and also I want to ask you about this since you're on our on our podcast we created the guernsey green fund uh, the uh, rule, basically a regulatory regime to be, you know, it does what it says on the tin type approach uh, to investing in green assets and also publish the PE principles, uh, or the green PE principles, I should say, where, you know, we were putting this, you know, put this concept that maybe, you know, investing to, to, to meet a path to net zero was a jolly good idea. Um, seemed to be a bit radical a couple of years ago, but it seems to be sort of a centre stage nowadays. Yeah, I think net zero, the climate crisis is really, I mean, obviously this year <clears throat> with COP26, it's focusing people's minds. Um, I think in respect of some of these issues that are arguably more challenging, <clears throat> I remember being asked you know, a similar question in back in 2008 about, you know, longer term sustainability related initiatives. Um and whether it was something that was just put to put in the too difficult box or not. Um, but my response then, and my response now, is, is it's all about the exit and the path to a smooth exit to being in a position to address any questions that are going to be asked about these issues at exit. And, and make no mistake, you know, trade buyers in particular and a growing number of the sophisticated private equity firms are definitely like from an IPO perspective, you know, you, you have to tackle these more challenging sustainability issues or, or, or supply chain issues. And climate risk is one of those that you absolutely have to have a response to. So I think that, that conversation resonated then with deal teams when we spoke about it in that way, that it must surely resonate even more so now because the buyers are asking those ever more sophisticated questions about the longer term sustainability of assets. Um, and I think, you know, showing that a general partner has helped put a company on a path towards sustainability, towards net zero, right? Um, it's just gonna be a must have, I think. And I, so the net zero observation is a great example. And what I would say is that within private equity, what we see is, Yes, some firms are looking at net zero portfolios. I think the asset class is well aware of the commitment across geographies towards a net zero economy by 2050. Um, the more progressive firms have looked at net zero. Some have been vocal about that and some have not. 
but what what I do see is greater industry collaboration. Um, so, for instance, the, the, the PRI-endorsed initiative Climat International, ICI, I think that's a good example of a, a multi-jurisdictional GPs and limited partners, LPs, coming together to share views, perspectives and practices, um, and even to contribute to emerging guidance. So coming together to work with stakeholders such as the Science-Based Targets Initiative and others to come up with guidance on net zero for private equity as an asset class. And that's, you know, that's something that we're very proud to be involved in. Oh, cool. I mean, um, I've seen that, that that initiative reported on in the past, and actually, I think it was in Financial News a couple of summers back when we published our Green P principles. You know, uh, it was referred to as a very similar thing. In, in that respect, Adam, in terms of you know, you talk about the the asset, uh, so the the risk and the reward over you know of the exit from the from the portfolio, is um, is it fair to say that sort of the, there's an ESG uh, reward and maybe a climate change risk or you know or, or are they both uh, are they both two sided um, you know, two sided issues you know ESG is, yeah. is it an is a risk and reward and climate change is a risk and reward or is it um, and is there a particular weighting to either, or is it, is it literally the case of, you know, at the moment we're still getting there to, to understand what it is that uh, we need to be thinking about to get us on that transition to five to seven years' time? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's not, there's no one size fits all to any of these things. And, you know, the reality is we all have, irrespective of where we sit and what we are as investors, what we invest in, where we invest, um, what type of investor we are thinking carefully about risk and opportunity as two sides of the same coin from an ESG, in my experience, is the best way to, to view it. So any asset, whatever it is, wherever it's located, will have an impact upon society and the environment, um, irrespective of what it does. And as those businesses grow, that input impact has the potential to become more significant and therefore needs greater scrutiny and management. So wh whether you are an impact fund or a mainstream buyout fund, whatever's in your portfolio, understanding what the risks and opportunities are with the assets in a portfolio as they grow and as you move towards that exit is critical. So whether it's risk mitigation uh, within the operations of a company or within its supply chain, or whether it's the opportunity arising from new products and services or transitioning towards a slightly different or even a brand new business model over time. That's a conversation that needs to be had now as soon as possible. Um, and it's the conversation that is being had by some of the more progressive private equity firms with the companies they have in their funds. So it's both. And I, I think one day um, it, it, it's not about we have a better ESG or impact strategy than someone else it's it's all relative and it's are you doing the absolute maximum you can do within the within the confines of your mandate to raise awareness of these issues in the short medium and longer term to position your companies well for that future exit and for a more sustainable future um, so that they're more viable um, and are you as an investor encouraging others by your actions to to adopt the same approach. And I think, so for me, I've always thought about risk and opportunities 
you can't think about them separately. If you're if you're trying to mitigate risk, you're you're automatically thinking about what opportunities there are, like changing a business model, changing a process, putting in control measures that might mean a risk is removed totally, and that you've got other other issues to start focusing on. So clearly, there's a financial cost to all of this. And I can, again, I can remember having those conversations with colleagues many years ago when I first, you know, when I first went into private equity. It was all about show me the money. Um, how can ESG add value to these assets? And yeah, to, to be frank, it was about finding the low-hanging fruit at the time just to make that case. Now, the low-hanging fruit doesn't necessarily need a, a specialist like myself with 30 years experience. <laughs> um, it's very much about good manufacturing practice and, and you know, <laughs> more efficient lighting and, the th- and things like that. But that's fine. That's just once initial step in the process of, of, of doing ESG well. But I think then you start to have conversations around, well, actually, where do we source some of these materials from? Does it make sense? Um, are we at risk of financial crime because of where we're sourcing it from? Uh, what are the costs to us in sourcing these materials from such a long way away? Does the product really need to have these raw materials in it because potentially hazardous or harmful to people's health, that sort of thing. Having those conversations and starting to think much more broadly about what ESG means for an asset and its product or services. I've seen that change happen over the last 12 years or so. Um, and that's what that's what makes me feel positive about the future because I think the more of those sophisticated conversations that investors can have with portfolio companies, the better outcomes we'll get in the longer term. So mitigating risk and capitalizing an opportunity, both equally important and part of the same conversation for me. That's incredibly considered response there. I mean, actually, if I may say so, people, listeners won't be able to tell, but I can't believe that, you know, looking at you, you've got 30 years of experience behind you. I mean, it's, 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 if I may say so, but uh, but less sort of flippantly and reverently, these, these, these time horizons that we're talking about are significant um and you've mentioned it before about the exit risk for the p the, the p industry you know it, it's very much our specialism in guernsey where we're europe europe's you know, number one center for p administration it's clearly you know, collars specialism your specialism too my, uh, my, my my question is 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 that yes this is a very much a, a journey that's that's gone on um are you, do you have any, ever have any concerns that maybe people are being you know, uh, a bit too ahead uh, ahead of ourselves on the rhetoric? You know, we're all talking about these commitments to net zero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, are people really there yet? Or, or and why aren't we seeing maybe more noise around commitments this year in COP26 to net zero in the, in the PE space? Yeah, it's interesting. I think we will. Let's see what happens. I do, all I would say is that the private equity is very considered. <laughs> um, they think carefully about how they run themselves and the investments they make and the commitments they make. And certainly for ourselves as a firm, you know, we're not going to commit to anything that we don't believe we can achieve, right? Yeah. Um, and I think you know, there's, a, there's a period of reflection and careful consideration going on. We want to think carefully as as an asset class about how to implement a net zero strategy that works in a private equity context. It's different to other asset classes. And I think that's what's happening. I think people are just taking their time to think carefully about how this will work for the business model. 
Um, so I think we will see more commitments in the run up to COP26 and, and, and coming out, out post COP26. Um, but the industry is, will, will, they want to get it right. And I think that's probably why that's the case. Of course, there are differences geographically, you know, without wanting to generalize. But, you know, those firms within private equity that have taken a lead um, on climate, specifically as an example, do tend to be in Europe. Um, I know conversations are, are happening amongst GPs globally about this issue, you know, particularly in the United States as well. But the firms that have been most visible to date around those sorts of commitments have been in Europe um, and other geographies around the world. Yes, it's a, it's a conversation. Things are changing, but the pace of change just does, does vary by geography. Um, and, and to some extent, it will be really interesting to see how COP26 goes um, and how that prompts other firms in other geographies to act. It's all about well, leadership, right? Leadership yeah. and culture change, yeah. It certainly is. And I, I said, you, you sort of, you, you came to my, my next question before I did sort of thing, which was actually to, to come you know, to talk about the US. I'll come back in a minute to investment horizons, but let's stick with speaking about the US for now. Obviously, the change in administration, major changes uh, very recently, um, you know, in respect to the US policy on Paris and, and climate change with the SEC. And similarly, um, with the Biden administration and the Labor Department changing their, you know, putting on abeyance the, the, the revised guidance on the SG, the Labor Department, and maybe coming back to that issue uh, again soon. Quite a lot happening there. You talk about these 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 geographical differences. Uh, you guys are you know, global investors. Do you see the US um, sort of d demonstrating a greater role in the next decade than it has over the last five years? Yeah, definitely. I think with the change in administration, we'll see that. I mean, what, what I would say about US companies, um, portfolio companies, is, I mean, they're great companies. Yeah, they're very well run. My experience of working with US management teams has always been very positive. They get stuff done. Um, the general partners in the United States, some of the best firms you could hope to work with, very considered in their understanding of an application of these issues. Um, I think we'll see a change now with the, with, the, with the new administration and with certain comments that the SEC have made around ESG and climate in particular. Um, yeah, I think that all bodes well um, for what we're going to see coming out of the US in respect of um, addressing ESG and climate in particular. Uh, so yeah, that, that gives me, that makes me hopeful. And I think there will be a change. What I find particularly interesting is the comments we see, not just in the US, but also in Europe from the financial regulators um, around um, what people are saying they do on ESG and climate, that sort of sort of marketing element and, and making sure that what people are saying they do is actually happening in practice. And that for me is, is incredibly important and it's very important not just because that conversation needs to be had, but it's important because it's coming from financial regulators, powerful regulators that the industry takes real note of. Um, so everything I've seen recently coming out of the US is is positive from an ESG and climate perspective. So I look forward to seeing what that what that means over the over the coming months and then the run up to COP twenty six. 
yeah, interesting to interesting theatre to watch. Eh? Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, my personal experience, I worked for a couple of American firms in my time and uh, they were both brilliant firms to work for. Well, look, I'm, I'll come to the, the one final point, um, which is about the investment horizon sort of conversation. The point you make about regulatory stuff too, our, our GFSC, the Guernsey Financial Services Regulator, actually published a thematic review uh, just last week, actually, um, you know, making similar points. And it's it's interesting to see that a lot of this has been driven by the regulatory community, obviously the TCFD, uh, and it's important uh, to have that continual you know, sense check, as it were. So it was, uh, it's, it was worth reading, we'll put it in our show notes, uh, what the GFSC said about uh, what's going on currently in, in, in Guernsey. One thing that's also currently going on, we've, we've been having this conversation ourselves here, is this investment horizon point. I just wanted to very quickly ask you before we, we finish about, about this. And in terms of, we, we've talked about PE many times, you know, the, 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 this five to seven year horizon, but assets, particularly in the climate change space, um, you know, they're, they're decades long. You know, there's a, there's a and we've, we've had this week, Sustainable Finance Week last year. It came out of it as a quite big thematic. And Tim Haynes, the ex-director general of the BBCA, made this point in a report that we published in Guernsey was that, you know, is there potential for new structures, new asset classes in this mismatch between the investment horizon? I just wanted to take a sense check. Do you, do you sense that as an issue or do you think that the, the market will somehow find its way to to funneling the capital to uh, you know, to the climate change agenda you know, by its own course? I'm thinking very much on the mobilisation agenda for COP26 and just whether or not you, know, you think there's any particular things that might happen in the PE industry that might be, you know, help nudge these things forward this year. Um, I think knowing the investment community I'm most familiar with, they will, they're very creative, considered, as I said, they can be very innovative. I think they can provide, if there's, if there's regulation out there, they will obviously follow it. And they're very mindful of these sort of longer term goals. Investors have a role to play. I think it's governments that really need to set these sort of mileposts in stone, as it were. Uh, and then the investments will will work within those confines and invest accordingly. I think they're very mindful that this. The more they understand that when it comes to the exit, there is value at risk for them if they haven't addressed these issues or cannot show that an asset is on some path towards net zero or towards becoming more sustainable. Uh, the more that can be encouraged through regulation or or any other mechanism that's just a no-brainer for investors they'll, they'll pick up on that and they'll make it happen and that that was certainly something we were very focused on in the prior role i had when i was at a buyout firm and it was that preparing for that conversation at exit for these issues that would be well beyond the typical investment horizon within private you know the average hold I and mean, you mentioned it sort of five to seven years it's actually, I think for many of the companies I used to be involved with, it was longer than that, but it certainly wasn't 20 years, right? <laughs> but it was often, with particularly with the trade buyers, it was actually having that conversation about, you know, in the longer term, this this business is on, is on a path to, to be a much more, maybe a completely different entity doing totally different products and services. But we're having that conversation during the, the um, due diligence process. So I think, the more that becomes standard practice within this industry, and I'm starting to see that now, and the more people are very mindful of certain regulatory 
government commitments to hitting certain targets. And we're all part of this, you know, the better, really, because I think the investment community will respond accordingly. And I think we are starting to see that. Again, it's, it really is all about It's COP26 is such an important year this year from a climate perspective. See what comes out. It certainly is indeed. And I think we'll both be um, you know, keep following it very, very closely. Adam, it, it's been really, really interesting considering the conversation today. And be, before I sort of you know, wrap, I always like to ask my guests, um, you know, a little bit about their backstories. Like, tell me about your childhood question, effectively. Um, and other than just sharing a you know, pretty northern trust and uh, once upon a time, uh, could you maybe share a little bit more about your, your personal experience and backstory to give our, our listeners an idea of you know, how you came to be where you are today? Sure. Like, oh, I've yeah, from a very early age, I've always been interested in the natural world. You know, I knew that's that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be involved in the environment in some way. <laughs> um, let's just say a career in finance wasn't front of mind when I finished my dissertation on the geochemical impacts of tin mining on Dartmoor. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but then you know, I started to first started working with financial sector clients, including including private equity, in the mid nineties. Um, and then I was approached to join one in, in an in-house capacity in 2008. But yeah, I just ended up, I just sort of ended up there. I was doing something I loved and yeah, and I just threw myself into it. And I was very lucky. I think it's right time, right place for me in many respects, because graduating in the early 90s, there was a lot of regulation coming out of the UK and the EU, uh, certain geopolitical changes around the world meant that the environmental consultancy business in particular was really really started to take off. So at quite a young age, got the opportunity with others to travel around the world, working for the World Bank and others, looking at, you know, fast, like really interesting facilities all over the world, pretty hairy issues. So it's a good experience at a young age, but never really thinking I'd end up in working in a secondary. <laughs> um, it just sort of it just sort of happened, and I think what I what I noticed was yeah, right time, right place again in two thousand and eight when Doughty Hanson it was who I, who I used to work for. They were looking for someone to come in and 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 be that head of sustainability. Um, there was a recognition at that that firm they wanted this was about value creation, and but they wanted a practitioner, a practitioner to work in the portfolio operations within the investment team. So someone who'd worked across sectors and geographies implementing ESG at companies. So I, I got that opportunity and I took it. And, you know, I was just I'm very fortunate that I've managed to have a career in, in, a, in, a, in an area that I'm passionate about. Um, I think all I would say is I do feel that scientists and engineers are underrepresented within the ESG community. Um, so anyone listening to the, I would encourage anyone that has an academic background like that to think about career in finance, because I Certainly, my experience is you know, greater diversity of thought, particularly investment committee, is always a good thing. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, Adam's career recommendations there. And Adam, but frankly, the, the passion and the commitments that feel came out there in terms of you know the conversation we just had, and I think that that's the for me the two uh, the two attributes that are really most required in this space. So you know, and you've clearly got them both in spades. 
it just remains to me to say, look, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it was a really, really good, considered conversation, uh, as, as I knew it would be. Um, and it really is quite nice, I think, to just be grounded in reality. You know, what's clear from me is this is a long-standing commitment, you know, personally for you in this space. Um, you know, clearly 2008 being a, a pivotal date in your personal journey, but it's 30 years of progress, you know, obviously, uh, on this on this sustainability journey. And, you know, to be, to bring it down, is my other, for me, the other takeaway was an understanding of this, maybe it's a paraphrase, but this concept of a, a transition of uh, a saddle path of value at risk along the, you know, on the transition to net zero is, is conceptually something that clearly is, you know, foremost of my for you and you know and color you know on behalf of your clients and i think it's just nice to have that nice calm considered reality check about how you know tough these you know these issues are and how it's going to be you know quite a still you know a lot of work to do to to, to complete uh, to complete the journey cop 26 obviously been an important you know milestone for us this year so look i'm once again, thank you very much. A really, really great considered uh, conversation. Really did appreciate that um, today. So just remains to me say, look, we've got a great back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions here on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. You can check them out. So uh, this is the listeners you are uh, by searching for them of the Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts, be it you know, Apple or wherever. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and we are guernsey.com and interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. Um, and we also will have links to Adam and Collar Capital social media in our show notes. So do check these out to hear more from, from Adam. So Adam, thank you very much, so much again. And um, we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Take care now.